0: Well, that was a year that was, well, let's never do that year again, okay? Uh, however, as I, as I look back on all of those images and think back on the last 15 months, uh, I just am blessed. As hard as it has been, um, blessed to have done the journey with you, blessed by God's grace and his mercy, blessed by your faithfulness, and um, grateful to be a part of this family and I just want just to thank him on our behalf for what he's done. Would you join me in praying? Lord, we are grateful. Um, even when we don't see it, you're working. You're always working. You have so many things that you are doing. that are all ultimately for good, but sometimes the wrapping paper on them isn't so pleasant. And yet we can still trust you. It's been a challenging season, and, and Lord, there's still issues that will be with us, I'm sure, for many months to come. But we're grateful for what we've seen so far. We're grateful for your sustaining grace and your presence and your care. Grateful for the family that you've given us. And I just pray that you would help us to be responsive to you this morning. Would you do a fresh work even now as we look into your word? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, as I've uh, talked with people about this season, there's a theme that seems to have come up at least with a lot of people that um, maybe you've experienced yourself and that's kind of the idea of of reset. Um, It's been very disruptive. However you have experienced it, whether it has been primarily of caution and concern and fear or frustration and irritation and the restrictions are driving you crazy, whether it's about the economics or the sickness, whether you've lost somebody or whether you have experienced COVID yourself or we have all these different experiences and many of them are not very pleasant. Many of them are very painful. And um, in the midst of all of that, um, a question I think has arisen in a lot of our minds is, okay, so what's God doing with this? If I take the sovereignty of God seriously, if I believe he actually is in control, then he's doing something through this. And what is that? And how does he want me to grow? What does he want me to learn? How does he want my life to shift in light of... This season. And that's what I want to look at briefly this morning, uh, both for us as individuals and then, and then for us as a family as well. We'll only scratch the surface of that. But it's a good time to say, What is it that you're doing, God, and, and what is it that you want to uh, shift? How, how, how does this time of reset, it's been disruptive, a lot of things have had to change. Before I rush back into just the way things were, what should happen? And I've talked to people who've seen very practical things in their daily lives. A friend of mine who has been able to commute um, from home, telecommute the whole time, and realized he doesn't actually have to go into the office ever again (laughs) and he's decided he's not going to unless he absolutely has to it creates such peace it gives him such uh, freedom now some of us may not have that opportunity some of us may still have to do business the old way but in his case he doesn't have to and so he's not going to it's one of those things and it's not just hey wouldn't it be cool it's like no this is there's something deeper driving this a reset is not first and foremost about practices it's about it's about purposes Right, and so there's a deeper purpose that he sees, as he adjusts his life a little bit and takes advantage of this disruption to say, "I don't think I have to do it that way anymore. I'll do it a little differently." Uh, a friend has been talking about how this has been a reset in family life, and how they have been um, just taking advantage of of streamlining and focusing and being more together as a family, and, and decluttering some of the things because. It had to be decluttered for a while, and try to recapture some of those things. I was talking to a um, contractor that was doing some work at my house this week, and uh, he has a friend who's just completely redoing his business because the dynamics of what he's gone through this season, he's found out, I don't have to do it that way anymore, and if I do it this way, I can save $18,000 a month. I think maybe I wanna save the $18,000 a month, and so that's what he's doing. Um, perhaps you have seen some very practical things. I hope, I hope you have been attentive to God in this season, and as we move forward, I hope you'll continue to be attentive and say, what are the purposes that should drive my life, and let me adjust the practices in light of that. I think that's also true for us as a church. What are the purposes we're really about, and how does that affect the practices that we're going to be pursuing? Right, we're, we're, if you will, emerging from a very strange season. Emerging into what? What is that to look like? What is that to look like for us as a church family? Do we just rush back to way, the way things were, or do we, do we learn and grow and, and maybe engage some things in a fresh way? One of the passages that's been very prominent in a lot of people's minds, and I know our overseer team has wrestled with this passage repeatedly, is in Hebrews where it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now those words, not neglecting to meet together, have been quite the point of debate and discussion. A lot of passion has gone into that, rightfully. And you've seen on the video some of the ways that we've tried to be creative in making sure we can still connect. And what we're doing here, is, is really the best way. For those of you that are online, we're gonna to continue to be online and would welcome you to join us anytime and every time. But if you're able to come, that's always the best thing. It's always best to be able to be in the same room and to, to, to shake a hand or hug somebody or have a conversation. But we've worked hard to try to say, how, how do we get to connect? Now we're emerging into an era that allows us a whole lot more freedom to connect the way we have historically done so. Why? Is it just about being in the room? Is that what the big um, issue is? I mean, it's great to be here. It is such a joy to be here. But this passage that has been so important in so many people's minds says here's the reason. So that we can stir one another up to love and good deeds. So that we can coach each other into a better life. A better life as God would define that. So that we can help each other, so that we can pour into each other, so that we can love each other for the sake of Christ's work in our lives and then through our lives, so that we can welcome others into this same family. That's why gathering is so important, so that we can do that. I was reminded of a prominent pastor, Francis Chan, many of you will know who he is. A few years ago, he took a fair amount of flack because of a radical shift in his own ministry because of the idea of reset. And he, he, he left the church that he'd built by God's grace to be quite large, and he said, one of the reasons is, I, I think I've become part of the problem. Not intentionally, but the church isn't first and foremost about some named pastor that's going to keep us all engaged. The first is foremost about the people of God being the people of God, loving each other, pouring into each other, discipling each other, disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's what it's about. And as, as my prominence grew, it became harder and harder for the church to actually fulfill its role, ironically, so I'm stepping out and I'm stepping into a new ministry that's going to allow me to focus this way. And what I'm hoping to do is I'm hoping to let go of patterns that have just kind of been, this is the way we've done things, and move closer to convictions that the scripture lays out. That's what a reset looked like for him and for his church. We're in a season that invites reset. Dads, this is a great opportunity. Your family is going to celebrate you, and that's good. That means you don't have to eat too many vegetables, and you can eat all the unhealthy stuff you want to today. Tomorrow, it's back to kale. But today, it's probably something that came from a cow. That's good. In moderation, right? Um, That's fun. But... It's also a good opportunity as dads to say, what is it that um, reset needs to look like in my life? Am I being the dad, the husband, the father, the man that God intends for me to be? Same for women, ladies. God has intentions for you as a wife and as a mom and as, as just a woman of God, whatever your age and stage. It's true for all of us. At every age and stage, God has things for us and it's time to time to say all right before i just kind of default back to the way things have always been maybe maybe there's a better way forward maybe there's a better way forward maybe i can i can learn some things hebrews basically says our job's to mentor each other to help each other grow you know there's a lot of hard work in living a life that is fruitful for God, and that is successful in the way that he would define. And he's given us resources, he's, he's made each of us distinctive, he's given you things. You may not think it, if, if you have kind of a low view of yourself, you may have a hard time believing this, but God knows what he's doing, and he's given you some amazing things that he wants to unlock and use in this world, that he wants you to invest, and he wants you to enjoy. And most of all, he's given us his spirit, which means it doesn't matter what other resource I've got available. I have the infinite resources of God. So we've got these resources and we've got hard work that we can put to the task. But if we're going to live out what it is that God calls us to live, it's helpful to have guidance along the way as well. Um, you, You know, I tend to range all over the map in my interests and music is one of my big interests. I'm not a musician, but I admire musicians and, um, I have a fairly broad palette of what I enjoy. And recently I was um, learning about a particular group that I enjoy and um, it, was, it was fascinating to me to hear, hear more of their story because you just see them as the developed artists and, and how did they get there? And um, uh, everyone in the room between 30 and 75 will recognize them as soon as I say their name. Um, which I will in a minute. But right now, let me just set the stage for you and maybe bring in other people, too, for whom this isn't a genre that they're all that interested in, right? This is the um, fourth most successful musical group, artist of all time. If you just count their album sales, they've got 120 million albums in the U.S. that they've sold and then worldwide a whole lot more right? They're in the rock band genre, the number two, when, when you consider number one's The Beatles, well, number two ain't so bad. They have um, the number one album of all time. They have the number three album of all time. The only thing that ha- keeps them from having number one and number two was a little album put out by a guy named Michael Jackson called Thriller. So, I guess it's okay if you wind up behind that. They have been nominated as a group, and then some of the some of the individuals have gone on and had uh, additional careers that are pretty impressive, but as a group, for 18 Grammys and have won six in six different categories, right? Six different categories. They won the Grammy for the best pop instrumental. They won the Grammy for the best pop vocal. They won the Grammy for the best rock vocal. They won the Grammy for the best country vocal. They ran, won the Grammy for the best vocal arrangement. They won the Grammy for the best album. Talk about. Diversity and talk about success. I mean these guys kill it. I don't don't know what your genre is, but if you think of the people that you love who are amazing, these guys have gone beyond them, dramatically beyond them. You may be into Michael Jackson or Alan Jackson or Mahalia Jackson or Jackson Brown, they went beyond. Right? You may be into No Doubt or One Direction or Two Pack or the Three Tenors or The Four Tops or Maroon Five. I'll stop counting there. <laughs> and they've gone beyond all of them. It may be Count Basie or Duke Ellington or Lord or Prince or Queen or B.B. King, and they've gone beyond all of them. Tennessee Ernie Ford or John Denver or Chicago or the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra. They haven't gone beyond the Beatles. That's almost impossible yet. Yeah. Oh, you said the Eagles. Yes, the Eagles. Yes, all right. See, some of you have been looking for an opportunity to clap all morning. It's like, can we clap now? Can we clap? Go ahead, clap. That's great. It's the Eagles, right? You've heard of them. Glenn Fry was born in Detroit, Michigan, and he grew up there rather obscurely and came out to California in the early 70s to try to make it. Don Henley was born in small-town Texas, came out to California. They met each other, and that's how it got going. They're brilliantly talented, and they've worked incredibly hard. But the thing that struck me as I learned more about their story was how many people had mentored them, how many people had poured into them, how many people had discipled them. Glenn Fry grew up in Detroit, which has its own, by the way, musical industry that was taking off when he was a young man, and coming through town was a guy a little bit ahead of him named Bob Seeger. He met Glenn, liked Glenn, and decided to mentor Glenn. And even in small-town Texas, Don Henley was playing the drums in his garage band, and he met a guy named Kenny Rogers, who liked him, and said, let me help you out, kid, and they were both brought along. When they moved out to California, they went to the Troubadour, and while Glenn was playing the guitar there one night, Linda Ronstadt, who was looking for a new band, was there. She liked him. She said, I'm about to go out on tour. Would you like to be my guitarist? He said, great. Do you have a drummer? Because I met one the other night, and that's how Don Henley got into Linda Ronstadt's band, and she poured into them. And as they're out on the road, they're getting better and better at what they're doing, more and more successful. She wants them to stay her permanent band, and they say, thanks, Linda, but we'd really like to launch out on our own. And she helped them. And then they moved back to California and moved into a starving artist apartment, the two of them. And the floor just below them was another starving artist who was just a little ahead of them, named Jackson Brown. Now, Glenn Fry and Don Henley have written literally dozens and dozens, no exaggeration, dozens and dozens of hits, including multiple number one hits in their musical collaboration. And when they started, they didn't know how to write a song. And they learned because Jackson Brown was their downstairs neighbor, and they listened monotonously, relentlessly, through the floor as he was working, slaving over Dr. My Eyes for his first album. They learned how to write a song. Then he introduced them to David Geffen who mentored them further and launched them into their career. It's like, here's these guys with all of this talent, all of this hard work, but they also have something more. Somebody's pouring into them and they're listening and they're learning. You and I need voices in our lives. And if if we're talking about how do I really do the successful life in the terms God wants... I think it's good for us to get the best coach we possibly can. So I'd like to suggest, bracketing Jesus, of course, because he stands out above everyone else clearly, let's get the most successful life that was ever lived and ask him what he has to say about how to do it well. If you have a Bible, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, please. I do think it's not a difficult argument to make to say Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle, was probably in God's terms, the most successful life ever lived, starting from where he was, getting to where God wanted him to be through God's grace and through his cooperating with that grace. And here in 2 Timothy, we have Paul giving his final words. And they are a charge, they are advice, they are here's how to do it, here's what to focus on, here's what matters and he's giving them to his son. It's Father's Day, not his physical son, but his son in the Lord, Timothy. And he's doing it with great urgency because he wants Timothy to really thrive. And you and I, as followers of Jesus, our thriving depends first and foremost on God's sovereign grace. We can never get away from that, and then if we ever get too far away from that, we start to make a mess of things. It's not about this moralistic treadmill we have to run harder and harder on. Right, it is about partnering with God in His grace. But partnering with God in His grace does bring hard work. And so as we lean into this text, it's gonna call us to high things, and it's always in the context. First, uh, Psalm 138 says that God will work out His purposes for my life. God's gonna do it, but I have a partnership responsibility. And Paul's laying that out for Timothy. So you should have your Bible open to 1 Timothy chapter, or 2 Timothy chapter 4, I'm sorry. Let me read you a couple of verses prior in the book to get a little head start. Starts by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, right? Father-son kind of relationship. Grace, mercy, and peace from God. He's gonna lay some heavy things on him, some high obligation, but it's always rooted in grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he says a bunch of things, picks up kind of that theme again a few verses later. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He says more things and then picking up on our theme again in chapter three, he says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, and so on. Continue in what you have learned. There's a pattern. Root yourself in the grace of God and follow what I'm showing you and go hard at it. These are my final words. Listen up. That's where we'll pick it up in chapter 4, verse 1. So if you want to follow along, it says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing. Right, Paul starts by telling Timothy, here's the things I'm saying to you, and then he says, by the way, I'm your example. You've, you've been following, you've been imitating, now look, I'm done. I'm about to leave, I have successfully completed what God has called me to do, and there's a reward in that, and here's where we get into this passage. It's not just we're listening to Timothy's mail and trying to say, well, is there anything for us? Paul actually has us in mind at a level, because as he talks to Timothy and he says, there's this reward waiting for me, he finishes verse eight by saying, and for everyone, right, that includes you and me, and for everyone who loves his appearing. We'll talk about what that loving and appearing means in context in a minute. But there's very specific things Paul is saying to Timothy, saying here's what it looks like for you to finish this race well. Here's what it looks like for you to order your life well. Here's what it looks like for you to do life as God intends so that you succeed at it by his definition. Reset your life around these things. And he's going to give a lot of things that are really easily applicable to me as a pastor but some of the things may not be as easily applicable to you in whatever your specific day job is, but he still intends you to get something from this and me to get something from this because he he throws it to the wider audience. Everyone will eventually be accountable for their life. Timothy, remember that. Now, as he lays out his charge to Timothy, I want you to learn or or, or latch on to two things today. One is my life direction is critical. My life direction is critical. It's a simple thought, and in some ways it's intuitively obvious, but I don't know that we actually live that way often. I think we kind of go through life. It just kind of happens, right? Some lives are lived with no purpose. If we're honest, there's just no purpose that's holding it together, there's no center, it doesn't cohere, and it's not going anywhere, it's just kind of reacting. We don't want to live a no-purpose life. Some lives are lived off-purpose. There's a purpose, it's just not the right one. It's going in an unhealthy direction, not a fruitful direction, not the one that's ultimately going to be satisfying to me or successful in God's eyes. A lot of us wind up on that path from time to time. And then there's a life that is lived on purpose. It's intentional, it's um, going somewhere, and where it's going or where it's trying to go is where God wants it to go. And so Paul is giving this charge to Timothy so that he can live his life on purpose. My life direction matters, it's critical. Look at the language that Paul uses to kind of press in this sense of urgency and significance to Timothy. It starts with verse, four, or verse one, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Those aren't words that we tend to say much, But some of you may have been in a setting where similar language is used, at least in some context. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. If it's been traditional for you, it may have gone something like this. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here in the presence of God and these witnesses... Right now, your marriage may have sounded nothing like that. You may have eloped. That's fine. The ceremony itself isn't the point. What those traditional words are driving at, however, is the point. This is really serious. This is really significant. This isn't casual. This isn't glib. This isn't offhanded. You don't back into this. If you eloped and said, hey, let's go get married, that's fine. But if that's what your commitment's like, you are in deep trouble. This is serious. This is something, in fact, a vow before God. Paul is using a similar idea to say, look, I'm calling God as witness here. Timothy, are you listening? This is what you need to be about. This is, your life direction is really critical. He goes on. He says, uh, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, those who've already passed, and those who are still alive, will all be accountable to Jesus. In other words, when it comes to my life, God has expectations. He has expectations. There's a huge lie, a huge lie that's not just popular in our culture, it's like the foundation of our culture that says, my life is mine, I make of it what I want. That's from hell. That is literally from hell. My life is God's, and if I'm going to succeed at it, I join him in making it what he wants, which, by the way, is better than what I want anyway. It's not like he's saying, let's see how miserable I can make your life. He created me, and he gave me desires, and he put me in a beautiful world with all of these great opportunities, but there's a framework and a context and a direction that's all part of his plan, and it is a lie from hell. In fact, it is the lie. It is the lie that has made everything bad because that's what Adam and Eve said to God. That's what threw it all off the rails. My life is mine and I'm going to do with it what I want. That's a lie. He's saying, Timothy, I want you to listen up. I'm going to give you some instructions. Here's how to do it. You need to know this. Your life matters to God. He has an agenda. He has expectations. That's gotta be the center of your plan. That's the only way it's gonna work. He goes on, as if that's not enough pressure, if you will. Um, He says, I charge you in the presence of God and then I charge you by his appearing. Jesus is coming back. There's a time clock ticking. There's an end to your life and there's an end to this world. And whether Jesus comes back for you and then later for the world or whether he comes back for the world and you're part of that because of your lifespan and his plan lining up, either way, he's coming back. I want you to remember that. I want you to know that there's a clock ticking, right? In Ephesians, he says, if you're going to be wise you need to remember the days are dark. The days are dark. Buy up the time. You're light. The world is dark. Wise people, buy up the time. And then, one more thing he says here. I charge you by his kingdom. By his kingdom. That's really helpful because it also lets all of us in, whether we're pastors or not, whether we're Timothy or not. It says, here's here's God's... Pattern that he's looking for, it's tied in with his kingdom. So fundamentally, the question is, am I living a kingdom kind of life? And we've looked at the kingdom over and over again, but let me just give you a few simple things to kind of key into. First off, the kingdom is about intimacy with God. The Garden of Eden was set up, if you will, to function like a temple when God called his people Israel into existence, he gave them a few rules and then he stopped and he said, now we're gonna spend a bunch of time on how to build the tabernacle. And then we'll get into all the rest of the rules. Because before you can even do life that I'm calling you to, I have to be among you, we have to be an intimate relationship, I have to make that possible, right? The Holy Spirit indwells me Jesus said, abide in me. That's how you're going to be fruitful. So a life that is is in light of God's kingdom is one that's in intimate relationship with God. That's always a great place to start. Am I in vibrant relationship with God? If not, I need to to be attentive to that. That's a place for a reset. A life in line with God's kingdom is also one that is um, focused on shalom, God's peace, his vibrant outworking in the world. If you will, it's focused on thriving. We were made to thrive. We were put here to help the world thrive in Jesus' name. So if, if, if my life isn't centered on helping thriving, something's off the rails. That's a place for a reset. If I've, if I've just dropped into the details to the point that I'm just going through the motions, I'm just doing the job, I'm putting in the time, whatever, and there's no sense of I am actually being a blessing, I'm seeking to bless, and I'm enjoying the blessing God has, something has gotten lost. It's a place for reset. Um, the kingdom is something that is entrusted to us as God's stewards. So there's this partnership. It's for his glory and it's a partnership transforming the world. So there's a good thing for me to look at. Is my life centered around God's glory and about joining him in some sort of transforming work in this world? Because if not, it's not lining up to what the kingdom is supposed to look like. And that's a place for a reset. So as as Paul starts off, he leans into this and he uses some pretty elevated language and and he says, Timothy, your life direction is critical. It's critical. How do I look at mine? How do I look at mine? Here's this, this radically disruptive season and I'm trying to move back into whatever next is. Where do I need some resets? How about us as a church, as we emerge from this strangeness We emerge into what? What is it that we're really going to be about? What matters most? Where are we going to pour our heart and our attention, our prayers, our resources, our care? What's that supposed to look like? Because our life direction is critical. Now, the second thing that I want us to grab onto from this passage is that our life direction is to complete the assignment God's given us. Right? It's it's not... It's not actually hard to, hard to discern. It's, I've given you an assignment. Do that. Make that what your life's about, and you'll, it'll be great. I will help you with that. My grace is sufficient, and my spirit is present and will empower you. Do that. So let's reread this, and um, I'm going to read it in a way to emphasize how this works for us. Starting again in verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing, and by his kingdom, blah, 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 fulfill your ministry. Okay, now, I don't intend in any way to be irreverent. I just intend to bracket that. Everything that was covered under a blah is really about Timothy. Here's what I want you to do as the pastor in Ephesus, as the one who's taking the mantle from me. And there are things that we no doubt could draw from there, and if we were actually trying to unpack 2 Timothy, we would go into that in much more detail. Our purpose this morning, though, is just to get what Paul is doing with Timothy and has a mind for us to engage with and jump to what it's about for us. So all of that other stuff you can bracket. I could probably live in that a little bit easier than many of you. You don't have to worry about how does that play out. It ends with this statement, fulfill your ministry. I charge you in the presence of God, fulfill your ministry. You've got an assignment. Psalm 138, we already said, says um, he will work out his purposes for my life. Ephesians 2 says that I've been saved by grace and I now have a a job to do, I have a role to play, I have a purpose, a direction, a focus, because I'm his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before for me to walk in. What does that look like for you? That's for you to figure out with God. Some of us may actually have some real crystal clarity. For Paul, it was really simple. A light blinded me from heaven and a voice spoke and I knew what I was supposed to do. Well, duh. Timothy, it was a prophetic word. Here's what you're supposed to do. Okay. Some of us may actually have that kind of clarity in which case the reset is easier. Go back to that and say, okay, Lord, how's my life direction right now lining up with that assignment? And what needs to be reset. Some of us may go, I, 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 and I suspect most people, because my, my experience is that most people don't have that level of clarity, that's okay. God's given us more than enough clarity. If he needed to be more specific, he would. So the context of your life, how do you do that as an assignment for and from God? I'm, I'm kind of on the music zone this morning, so another example. Um, somebody who actually was a far more influential musician than the Eagles, although he didn't sell as many albums by any stretch, was Johann Sebastian Bach. Um, Bach, if you if you Google it and look at the kind of the nerdy classical music kind of sources, um, they'll list the great greatest composers of all time, and and almost always the top three are the same. They bounce around, but it's almost always Mozart, Beethoven, and Bach. And more often than not, Bach is at the top, which is a little surprising to us because his music is the oldest and probably is the least comfortable for our ears. We're more into Eine kleine Nachtmusik or into the Fifth Symphony or something like that. And it's like, okay, all right, organ music, I guess. Um, But for true musicians, it's not actually that hard. Uh, BBC Music Magazine did a poll just last year of 174 of the greatest composers alive today and said, who's the most important and most influential musician of all time? Bach walked away with it. Somebody said, every single note of music since his day has borne his influence staggeringly important musician. Obviously he worked incredibly hard, and obviously he was a musical genius. But there was something more, a dynamic going on that I think will help us. Bach wrote more than a thousand pieces that we still have. He wrote more than 200 cantatas that we still have, which is a very complex piece of music. Back in the day, it was something you wanted to do. And if you wrote one a year, you were doing pretty well. He did 200, he was writing one a week. Literally one a week for year after year after year. Here's how he started every single piece of music that he wrote. Up in the upper left corner, it just starts with the letters J-J. Jesu yuva Jesus, help! I don't know if he did it with that tone. But Jesus, help. And then he went to work. And as he did his work, he did his best, and when it was all done, the lower right corner, the last thing he wrote, S-D-G, soli Deo Gloria. For the glory of God alone. Now here's somebody whose particular focus of life was music. But he's living out the dynamics that Paul is calling Timothy to just in his context. It starts with Jesus help me. And it concludes with to the glory of God alone. What if you did that every day with whatever you're doing? Being a mom or a dad being an accountant or a teacher, being a student, whatever the activity of the day is. What if I did that, started with Jesus help me, and looked to at the end of the day, write SDG, to the glory of God alone on it. I think that would go an awful long way in the hands of God by his spirit, by his power, through his grace. I think that would go an awful long way to seeing the dynamics that Paul is talking to Timothy about, unlocked in my life. There's there's things that I can lean into, even if I don't know, here's my specific path, go be the apostle to the Gentiles, go pastor the church in Ephesus, write half the New Testament. It doesn't tell me that, I'm just doing life. That Perspective, that attitude would be really helpful. And then there's things I can lean into because I know these are the things that God wants. So I can lean into thriving, right? That's why the kingdom dynamic is so helpful, right? What is, am, I, am I being a blessing? Am I, am I creating thriving? Am I just doing stuff or am I actually seeking to cause thriving? I, I, I had a perfect example of that this week, contractor that I was working with, a plumber. So you know my week wasn't great because there was a plumber at my house, right? <laughs> um, so, I, I don't know his spiritual journey yet. We've started the conversation. I hope to find out where he is at some point, and, and hopefully that'll advance and, and be a blessing for both of us. But I think he intuitively gets the dynamic of what it means to be a human, the way God intends, in the most fundamental way to him. He's a plumber. And uh, they were doing a repipe. A bunch of repipes, right? Now, if you're doing anything construction, you know, everyone is backed up like crazy. It's going to be way more expensive and take way longer. And the contractors are pulling their hair out just as much as the, as the consumers are because they can't get their supplies. And it's hard to get the calendar. So they're just, ah, everything's stressful. And so they work so hard to get every job lined up just right. And he had somebody call him and say, I'm in desperate need and I need, I need my whole house repiped next week before Thursday. <laughs> right. Are you kidding me? But he said, what's the story? He said, well, um, you know, my wife and I, we just had a baby and uh, we're moving into this new place and sold our place and we got a move and bought this place at the inspection. Everything was fine. And then, and then before we moved in, but after it's closed, the pipes ruptured, ruined the floors, ruined the walls. I have to have major work done and I need you to repipe it. And all of the the furniture is delivered next Thursday. Can we do it? Right, so my contractor says, let me see what I can do. He was actually excited about that because he wasn't just doing plumbing, he was helping thriving. And he worked with people, he rearranged schedule, I mean, this is a lot of work, but he rearranged the schedules and they finished their job, patched and painted on Wednesday, so that the furniture could get there on Thursday. Now, I don't know where this guy stands with the Lord, but I think he has an intuitive understanding that's helpful for us. How am I just helping people thrive, lean into that? Maybe I should lean into love. We all know that's central to God's plan. Jesus boils it down. Love God with everything that's in you. Love your neighbor as yourself. How am I I strategizing my life to love? Putting myself in a place where I can love. How am I going into conversations with love? Right? And that doesn't mean nice. Doesn't mean kind. Sometimes love is confrontive. But, but do I ever think about that? Lord, how can I love this person in this place? Let that be defining. Maybe if I woke up every morning and say, who am I supposed to love today and what's that supposed to look like? That would move me towards the reset God wants for me. Disciple-making is obviously the center of what God intends. So here's a question. Who is more like Jesus because of me right now? Who is more like Jesus because of me right now? And then follow it up with, and who's next? Lean into the message itself. Right? We have this wonderful gospel truth that needs to be told. And, you know, I realized as I try to recalibrate my life, it's easier than you'd think. I got into the conversation pretty easily this last week just because I was looking. It wasn't awkward. It wasn't forced. It wasn't difficult. It was a good conversation. The person appreciated hearing. It was good. I was just trying to lean into the message because it's something that needs to be heard. Right? This is for all of us. This reality that there's an assignment from God and our life direction is really critical. I told you we'd come back to these words um, where Paul says, I'm gonna be awarded and so will everyone else who loves his appearing. In context, we need to understand that. He's just called Timothy to act a certain way in light of Jesus appearing, right? I used to think of love as appearing as like, hey, Jesus is coming back, cool, okay. That's not what this is. It's like, Jesus is coming back. Cool. God, help me live every day ready. And help me help others to be ready. That's those who love his appearing those who are really ready, those who are really looking for it because his appearing is always used as this motivation, as this encouragement to say the clock is ticking, the opportunity is here, my heart matters, the people around me matter, be ready. And that's where it really touches ground for you and me and for us as a church. Let me just come back to that for just one second. Francis Chan, I I started out with him and he caught a lot of flack for the changes he made and I wouldn't agree with everything he does. I don't agree with everything I do, right? I try to learn and grow, and I make mistakes. So why would I agree with something, everything somebody else does, right? So I don't agree with everything Francis Chan does, but I think he nailed the dynamics of this. He said, look, we're supposed to be disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Now everyone's showing up to hear Francis. I think I'm getting in the way. Need to have a reset. I think it's about being disciples, all of us being disciples who make disciples, I don't want to be a part of that. I have a conviction that God wants Redemption Hill Church to be a great church. I think you should too, because if you think about it, it's intuitively obvious. The, the, The alternative is God wants it to be a mediocre church. Pretty sure that's not in his vocabulary. He wants us to be a great church. I promise you, I am not godly enough or good enough to build a great church. But God's good enough, and he's called us together. That's what the end of Matthew's about. He says, all authority is mine. Go and make disciples. I'm with you always. That's for all of us. Francis does a lot of speaking and interacting with church leaders, and he'll ask them sometimes, what are the things that people expect at your church? And they go on, the list comes pretty quickly. They want, um, you know, they want a sermon that's engaging, they want, um, Music, your music tends to get more discussion, a certain length, a certain type, a certain, you know, whatever. Um, they want coffee, <laughs> they, want, they want parking, they, you know, they want age-graded kind of things that are just so, oh, n- nothing wrong with those things, those are all very fruitful and good, and we engage with those things. But is that what it's about? Then he says, so uh, what is it that God asks? What's God's expectation?" And they come to that real quickly. Oh, God expects us to love each other as he has loved us. He expects us to care for the vulnerable in their place of hardness. He expects us to to make disciples of all the nations. They make that list pretty quickly. And then he asks the really penetrating question. So if you were to neglect one list or the other, which one would make people more mad? Which one would they get more upset about? Their expectations or God's. And I think he's tying into something we all intuitively know. I'm gonna get more upset, really, about my expectations, unless I'm guarding myself, and you are too. Reset. Reset. What are we about as a church? We're about glorifying God, being disciples who make disciples who make disciples. He's given us a better story for our lives and a better family to live it in, but that only happens when we realize that our life direction as a church is really critical, and we fulfill the assignment that's given to us. And I want to f- end with this last words of the book, because it's important to come back to this. This could just be some moralistic, hoorah kind of speech, but that's not what Paul's doing. The last words of the chapter, of the, chapter, or the book, the last words of Paul that we have recorded, the Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. God's already working, and he's got what we need. He just says, I want you to hit reset. If I'm highlighting something, hit reset there. Lord, I pray that we would do that. We would lean into your grace. We would lean into love. We'd lean into the message. We'd lean into promoting thriving. We'd lean into whatever it is that you're drawing out of us right now. And that we would have joy in that. And that you would be on it. That we would love each other profoundly. That we'd be a people known for loving you and loving each other and welcoming and pursuing everyone. And that if they would just stick with us, they'd become like you because that's the way you are at work among us. Lord, that would be our prayer. We ask for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen.